All right, this is a song that, that we've been work, working on in secret for a, a while now. We're going to make an attempt to record it. If we mess it up, we'll just stop and do it over again. It doesn't have a name yet, but it uh, doesn't really need one. Howdy, folks. This is Scott Parker, and you're listening to episode 47 of the ZappaCast for, well, it will be November of 2020 by the time you hear this. And we have one of those panels that makes me simultaneously glad to be alive and also scared to death. So we're going to just start going around the horn here. First of all, from the greater Los Angeles area, we have the boss, Ahmed Zappa. Uh, hello. Um <laughs> I'm not the boss. I'm a friend. I'm a friend. <laughs> Speaking of friends, a gifted, dynamic human being, ladies and gentlemen, Joe Travers. Ladies and gentlemen. Hello out there again. What's happening? Of course, we have uh, our producer, Phil Circus from way up in the Bay Area. Back again. Hello. And as really kind of all of our special guests on this episode, we have a man who is now officially my freaking hero, Alex Winter, ladies and gentlemen, documentarian extraordinaire. Hello, hello. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. So I was talking with Alex before we started, and I said, well, how tired are you now? So, Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just, just getting the documentary to the point where we could see it has been a long road. Yeah, I mean, the whole process before we, we were even able to start making or before anyone even gave us money to make a documentary was a long road. So there have been many roads and all of them long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I have to say, and I've, I've said this to Joe a number of times, but I've seen the movie about four times now. And I, I just have to say it is for me, and I'm not just saying this, it is easily the best documentary I've ever seen dealing with Frank's life and his, his work. And it is to me simultaneously a love letter to Zappa fans everywhere. And also the documentary by which future generations will learn about the man and his music. So brava, as they say, possibly nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it, it was, it was very, very challenging it was certainly the the hardest doc that we've made, um, but it was also the most gratifying and the most emotionally rewarding. And you know, it wasn't as if, and I said this from from the outset, even t- talking to Gail, it wasn't as if we were trying to squeeze Frank's entire life into two hours. It was we, we were really trying to tell a story about a, about a man, uh, a specific story. Um, there are many many stories to tell about Frank Zappa. So I would like to think that this will fit somewhere in, in a collection of those stories, but I would hate to see this be, that's why I always get upset when I hear the word definitive. Like I get it. Like it's a nice thing to say, but I'd, I'd love to see a 20 part series on Zappa's, you know, I mean, the guy had this incredible output and this incredible life and there's a lot of story left to tell. Uh, But I'm very proud of this particular story that we told. Well, as, as am I, Alex, you know, the, the, the bonds that were formed making this doc because of the adversity and the sensitivity and the, and how emotional it was, you know, looking back and all of this and there's just this moment in time, it's, I wish Gail was here. I certainly wish Frank was here and you know, to, to, to finally have this movie come out is so overwhelming to me. And I'm, I'm thrilled that Scott, that you liked it. You know, you're one of you know very few people who have seen it. You know, the world is going to see it soon. And Alex, you, you really did an amazing job. And I think you got to this place because you earned the trust of Gail. And, you know, we, we all know how protective and specific she was and you guys, the journey started with with you and her, and you know she would be so proud. And I think the movie is fantastic as well, Scott. Like you were saying, Alex, you just did an amazing job. Thanks. I mean, I have to um, you know credit where it's due. You know, folks that are sitting here uh, were of enormous help. And uh, you know, I came into this thing I'd known Ahmet before. 
Glenn Zipper, my producer, and I um, were bewildered at the fact that there had never been a, a strong biographically oriented documentary on, on, on Zappa's life. You know, and Ahmet secured me a meeting with Gail with the caveat that this will probably go nowhere, but I'm happy to uh, organize a sit down. And I, I was, you know, that was helpful. And that's often the case with pitching docs, just to be clear. You're, you you pitch way more than you make, obviously. So I was at ease with the possibility that at at the very worst, I was going to get to meet someone that I admired and and have a conversation with. And we did hit it off. But honestly, there's a there is, you know, this this is Zappacast, so you know, but there the the amount of labor that goes into making sure that Zappa's music is alive and brought out to the world appropriately and and well was astounding to me when I first, you know, I I met Gail, I met I met Holland and Melanie, and then I got to meet Joe. And, you know, Joe and I worked incredibly closely for years. And so I have a huge debt of gratitude for the brain trust that I got plugged into um, and the level of care that goes into all of that material. You couldn't really categorize it. You couldn't say, oh yeah, that's rock and roll, because it wasn't. It's jazz. No, it really wasn't. It's pop music. No, not at all. Well, what the hell is it? It's Zappa. So it was an uh, it was an exhaustive process, and, and all docs are to a degree. This is an order of magnitude more exhaustive than anything else I think any of us had ever embarked on. Yeah, I mean, it's not like this movie was was made where we all sat down like you would do a normal production and maybe try to you know bang it out in six months. You know, this is this has been years and years and years, and thousands and thousands of man hours that went in into it. And a lot of faith and belief that it could happen had it started and had to be maintained by by Alex. It was so touch and go on whether or not it would ever happen. And first and foremost, the unsung heroes, or I, I hope we've sung the praises of of the fans. You know, the, the Kickstarter campaign and their generosity and their desire to help preserve the media that was really you know, in danger, uh, and this whole process wouldn't be possible without having that support from the community. So this is, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's been such an emotional journey of tremendous gratitude. And for me, selfishly, I, I've got to hear things and see things that aren't in the movie that make me feel more closely connected to my parents now, you know, now that they're both gone. So that's been tremendously rewarding. Well, Alex, when did you first get a notion that this was something you wanted to do? And who did you first approach? Was it Ahmet or who else in the Zappa camp you might have approached with that idea? So... We had just come off a film called Deep Web about the Silk Road black market, and it had been I'd been kind of immersed in a federal criminal trial for a few years, and it was very grim and depressing. And uh, Alex, and you know, Gail watched it uh, just so you know to even have that meeting with you. She was so into it and so all in, and, and she was really impressed by oh, that movie. Thanks, um, but we we wanted to do something that wasn't in the political space that directly that that was more retrospective that had some levity that was culturally oriented you know i grew up in the 70s so zappa to me was always much more than a kind of rock god in fact i never really saw him as a rock god but part of that had to do with the way i came out his music later in life and and realized that he wasn't the rock person at all really not to be missed my personal opinion but but when I was young, he really represented to my generation someone like, you know, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Lenny Bruce, someone who had a huge uh, kind of cultural POV that was uh, kind of influential and inspirational as well as entertaining. And, you know, I remember vividly sitting with my mom and dad and watching him on SNL. For me, Zappa was the perfect documentary subject. He was paradoxical, he was contradictory, he was polarizing, 
He lived at an incredible period in American history. He was engaged with that history. He wasn't in an ivory tower. And yet he was also in an ivory tower. All of those dualities, that's just awesome doc stuff. That was our impetus. You know, it was uh, back in 2014. Um, and I reached out immediately to Ahmet because uh, Ahmet, you know, has his own production company. They've, he's been doing stuff for years. And I was like, you know, A, why has no one ever done this? And B, could we pitch it? And C, who would we pitch it to? <laughs> the funniest thing is Alex and I bonded over our love of this 80s horror movie called The Gate. Yes, that's true. Oh, that <laughs> was a teenage horror movie thing. And that's that was that was really truly reconnected. So it is funny to me that, you know, where we were geeking out on that movie, you know, that here we are where again the levels of gratitude to the story that you've put together, the the journey has been extraordinary. I feel much closer to you as as a brother from another mother. And no, I'm so excited for for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. <laughs> I remember. I remember when uh, Gail saw the sizzle reel that you had submitted, right? Yeah. And I sat with her and watched that, and she, you know, was super jazzed about it. And it was really just kind of like something that you would put together from existing footage on the internet. Yeah. And what's amazing about that is that captivated her to the point where you were able to get a meeting, right, and sit down and actually discuss how you felt about this project. And what's interesting about all of that is that you succeeded where many have failed, I think, because you weren't the first person that has, you know, come forward with this kind of an idea, right? But ultimately it worked. And so how did that meeting with Gail go? Like how, you know, what was, what was that like? Well, you know, she, and I, I've had meetings with a lot of people who have, you know, cultural impact or, you know, political players or whatever, she had that kind of gravitas, right? It was like sitting with a head of state, but more like sitting with Merkel than, you know, Ronald Reagan, right? Like someone who you would actually, you would have simpatico with. So I wouldn't say I was scared, but I was definitely aware of her. You know, I knew a lot about her um, and her history. And, you know, she really was, I would argue, if not the first, she probably was the first, but certainly one of the most important women in uh, the music industry at a very seminal period of the music industry. And at a time when the music industry was a hundred percent male driven, you know, running an independent label, having, you know, enormous vision for how to keep those things alive. By 1982, we had started a small mail order company and we did like a million dollars worth of sales. For us, that was good business because you only had to sell a quarter as many records really to make the same amount of profit. This is where all the fan mail comes, and this is where I read it. And if you don't believe me, look around you. There's boxes, and I read everything. In retrospect, people think you're a genius, but all that's happening, you're just, okay, now what? And it's just an, an idea comes to you, and then you go for it. So, and, and you know, this is a long answer, but the, but the, there's really no short I, You know, I come from an artist family, and, and my mother and father were very industrious artists in a very different world than, than Frank and Gail, but similar in a lot of ways. Same generation, same political proclivities, same industriousness. You know, my, my dad ran his own dance company, um, had to fight for money, had to fight for, you know, for survival, had to come up with interesting marketing ideas. Very mom-and-pop arts family. So I'd always related to the Zappas in that way. And I knew that that was something that I wanted to convey in the film. And I think that was an area in which we clicked right away when we first met, was talking to Gail was not unlike talking to people I grew up with, who were very smart, very tough, did not take shit, but were also very human and very moral, and you, and you had that way in. So uh, I, I related to her right away, but I honestly, Joe, did not expect her to say yes. I really thought... This is going to be, I like talking to people. I like meeting interesting people is one of the reasons I like making documentaries. I really chalk this up to, okay, I get to spend a half hour talking to Gail Zappa and that will be fun. Um, <laughs> little did I, little did I know. Um, <laughs> what you want, right? Uh, but Joe, you, you, you're so right. I mean, I can't tell you how many meetings I sat in with Gail where, you know, I think when we first spoke, Alex, I'm like, Dude, this is why I was like, this. Give, let me just tell you from my perspective what I what I had experienced, right? Which was there had been a lot of people that approached Gail. Uh, Gail 
uh, was open-minded enough to, to take a meeting and just didn't click with some filmmakers. And these are, you know, there were, there were a handful of them and Joe's aware. And, and the fact that you guys hit it off and the level of access she afforded you, Alex was, you know, that, that didn't happen. Believe me, Joe knows he's the vault. My, he knows who goes into the vault. He knows he's, he's like, you know, even when, cause, cause, cause when Gail was like, yeah, we're going to do this. Joe was like, are you serious? <laughs> Someone go into the, like, what is happening right now? I cannot stress to you listeners enough, the bond that was quickly formed between Gail and Alex. And I think it has a lot to do with Alex's work ethic, making the sizzle, putting in the time without there being a budget uh, going out of pocket himself to come up and get the interviews. And, and Alex was aware, you know, we had conversations about Gail being sick uh, and we all thought Gail would still be with us here today, but you know, Alex, every step of the way just did the honorable, the right thing uh, the above the board way of going about putting a, a documentary together, a film together which is a totally chaotic, can be a totally chaotic experience. And you need a lot of organization and have to be very focused and have the methodology down, uh, especially when we were also at the same time against the clock on the assets just dying, right? Yeah, that's what exactly what I was going to say as soon as you were finished. Well, you know, I'd had so many different conversations with Gail in the past about like, wouldn't it be nice if, some kind of university or some kind of like millionaire that absolutely loved Frank Zappa would come forward and like uh, have a lot to do with the preservation of the things that we needed taken care of in the vault, which mainly was the film, you know, because that was real problematic. And, um, you know, if Alex needs to be thanked for anything, it's, it's, it's definitely making that happen, uh, you know, incorporating the whole Kickstarter aspect of this whole project and making that something that, became, uh, you know, such an important part of it because honest to God, that film really needed that. To, it needed that to happen because we were like on borrowed time with that stuff, you know, with the audio tape, it's different because that can be saved, but the film can't. When is that documentary coming out? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Alex is a, is a true godsend in that, in that uh, regard as 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 to to be a, a a huge motivating force for the security of that those assets, you know. Seeing the tip of the spear and the rallying cry, you know, Alex, we we never would have done a Kickstarter. We we, didn't, we never would have thought of that. And can you just speak to the hard work that a Kickstarter campaign <laughs> like that actually? Because I think people feel like it's. It's oh, you put it up, and and then people. <laughs> and also, I wanted to know: Did you have uh, prior uh, experience doing Kickstarter projects to this before this? So here's yeah, here's a here's a very very brief history of how we got to even making a documentary after Gail said yes, because there were years that went by where there was no documentary and no hope of a documentary, and and so it's said, Gail died before we got financed. So at the point that Gail died, we were into a Kickstarter to preserve the vault. I did not have a nickel to make the documentary with. There was no guarantee to her that that was ever going to happen. So, you know, I, I sat with her. She, she presented her kind of a thesis for what I wanted to do. She really liked it. She introduced me to Joe. She said, I want him to see the vault. I went down into the vault, really mostly with Joe. And I was like, this is amazing, but it smells like vinegar. <laughs> and and if and if you come from a film background which I do because I'm old and I went to film school when it was still filmed that means that film is dying and I was like how much of this is deteriorating and he was like okay you know we've been focused on the there's an enormous amount of material down there more than anyone could ever get to in their lifetime so let me be clear about that they had done an incredible job and continue to do preserving work at a furious rate all the time but there's, you know, stuff that's not of commercial value or stuff that isn't, you don't even know what the hell it is. It's in boxes up on the top of shelves. 
which I, as a documentary filmmaker, I knew was the stuff I wanted. It was weird rolls of eight mil film from the fifties and stuff like that. That stuff deteriorates very quickly. So I was like, all right. So there's the good news is that you can salvage this. The bad news is it's very, very expensive. I had done a small Kickstarter on my previous film, Deep Web, and I knew a guy named Ivan Asquith, who was at that time, 2015, sort of the grandmaster of the biggest Kickstarter campaigns that had been done. You know, the ones that had raised like 10, 15, even 20 million, just huge amounts of money, which is not what we we would ever get for a project like this. And we mounted a campaign. I, I brought it to, to Ahmet and Gail and, and Joe and explained to them what it would entail, that there was no guarantees it would succeed, but it was our best shot at raising a lot of money to actually do this work, which is extremely expensive. But it, it was a solid year, full-time year of my life, just doing the Kickstarter, a full year. It's like making a feature. The prep process was, was about a half a year. Then you hit go on the Kickstarter, and then you've got an enormous tail on the other end. Through the Kickstarters is insane every day. Then you have a huge tail on the end, and it's still going. My whole office is basically a shipping factory, and everyone in my on my team is still spends most of their days packaging backer rewards. We raised a million and a quarter, which was more than double any other project that was in a documentary space. We ended up with close to 10,000 Zappa backers who are with us to this day who we communicate with all the time. They're like family at this point. I know many of them personally very well at this point. I've never experienced it. I've never experienced anything like it. It was more stressful, more exhausting, more scary, and more exhilarating than anything else I've probably ever done. I really hope I never have to do it again. Um, <laughs> that that being said, we raised that money and we embarked on a two-year preservation mission, which you know, which Joe and Ahmet were a part of. On the other end of that, we saved a vast quantity of material that is now, you know, for historical record will be seen. It'll be end up in a museum or a university or wherever it ends up, and it will be there for the historical record forever. So you can get bummed out, you know, because the goal is to make the movie and then you know, you're just, you're spending all this time with energy vampires and it just doesn't go anywhere. And, and uh, we're so grateful. If, if all roads lead to this moment in time, the people that actually stepped up to make the documentary have everyone, when we were really, really doing it, have been extraordinary. Don't you think, Alex? Yeah, we were unbelievably lucky. Um, it was It was one of those movie moments where you have that week where you're like basically, and this has happened before, where you're done. You're like, we're done. We tried. We really exhausted every conceivable resource. We tried. It didn't happen. Maybe we can circle back and try again. We have the vault media. It will always be there. And after all these years, and to Ahmet's and Joe's point, like, by this point, I'm family. Like, I'm that guy who, like, walk, I would, like, park my car down the hill when they were still in Woodrow Wilson. And I'd, like, walk, you know, and I've got, like, a whole other career going on. But I'm spending vast amounts of time, like, walking up the street with my little tripod <laughs> under my arm and my little camera and like, and like going into the little downstairs room with Joe and Jay Warner and, like, logging footage and, like, <laughs> looking at shit and... Day in, day out, that's what I'm doing. And I'm like, I have no promise of actually making a film on the other end of this whatsoever. <laughs> and then suddenly Gail is in hospice, which is like a nightmare. And like, I don't have the film financed yet. I, I don't know her well enough to know, does she really care that I like saved like boxes of Super 8 16 millimeter film? Like, I, I know she did. I know she did, right? I do. But I just felt like, God damn it. Like, you know, now Gail's going to die. I don't have a green light on my dock. Like, I'm literally a member of the family at this point. Like, I'm like, hey, I'm here. Don't mind me. I'll be down there, you know. Sandwich? So it was, yeah, exactly. Glass of milk is fine. Thank you. Pet the cat. It was very, very surreal. And I was, you know, to Amit's point, we were shooting as much as we could. We were bringing, like, cameras in to shoot Gail. We were shooting the house because we knew that was going up for sale. No, none of this was financed at this point. Um, I will say there have been... Many, many, many challenges along the way, but we always managed to sail through. And then COVID hit literally the week before we were going to have our world premiere at South by Southwest. 
And again, it was like that moment when I couldn't get financed when it's for an independent doc of this size, you have to have a festival premiere in order to sell to a distributor. That's just the way the business model works. So we people love the movie in the festival world. So we had South by lined up for a premiere. And then we had this massive global festival tour lined up all the way through to the end of the year. Days before, we're literally all tickets bought, hotels booked, press booked, reviews are already banked, like all of that. Boom, pandemic, everything dies. And I came out of the pan, the you know the the sort of stress of just dealing with the pandemic and thought, is this movie dead? Like, are we now never going to come out, or is it just going to sit on a shelf? And we started a very complex and very challenging period of figuring out how to deal with finding a distributor in a pandemic uh, with no festival backup and no reviews and just pure people having to purely love the film and believe in it. And and again, we struck gold. We got you know this partnership with Magnolia, who are my favorite film company. I've been wanting to work with them for many, many years, and they've done narrative and docs, but some of the very best docs in, in the history of, of this form. I wanted to ask you, where will people be able to see it when it in November? What is it like late November, right? Is it like Netflix or Amazon Prime or what, where is it going to be at? It's, uh, yeah, it's coming out, well, just so you can mark your calendar, it's coming out on Franksgiving, which is show up in everybody's uh, calendars automatically if they have the right kind of app. Um, and uh, <laughs> so whatever your Franksgiving holiday plans were this year, please include us in those. Uh, November 27th, we are given COVID, we will be doing whatever theaters exist, which may be none, but if they exist, we'll be in them. And all VOD, which is very similar to what we did with Bill and Ted 3. Basically, that is iTunes, Amazon, pay-per-view, DirecTV. It goes out. It blitzes. So it will be very easy to find. We'll be doing lots of press. <laughs> and, of course, the Zappas will be doing the same. Expected stuff, you know, the jack-in-the-box Zappa Jack. You know, <laughs> what else? Does it give a ring job? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, we have um, some promotions going. You'd think, which is just Jack in the Box. Why would McDonald's step up? There's the, yeah. the spicy McFlurry, you know? Yeah. There's the <laughs> there's the, the ballpark Franks are coming out. Yes. Uh, the weird thing is, like, the Milk Council, you know, was like, why don't we do, like, um, like Frank Zappa's missing? Like, put in a missing ad. <laughs> a milk carton. I was like, that's. Yeah. Oh. We thought we were. We thought that was in poor taste. But, yeah. Totally. Uh, so we turned that yeah. one down. Um, yeah, <laughs> the Subway burnt weenie sandwich will be available uh, from hey, the 1st nice. of November. And then it will come out internationally. That's a separate, whole separate deal for us. So that will follow. And then we're in festivals. There, uh, What happened was a lot of the film festival community gathered after COVID and started doing drive-ins and virtual festivals. We've been in all of the big festivals that are going on now, San Francisco and Montclair and all over uh, the world, actually. IDFA. Is there a drive-in uh, experience in Los Angeles because I've I've never been to a not anymore. We did we did for Bill and Ted, and then COVID shut a lot of those down. Bill and Ted three premiered at a drive-in in Montclair in in outside of LA. It was fantastic. And was it a proper like vintage drive-in? Yep, it's the actually the largest drive. It was the largest drive-in in the country. It just clo it's closing because I think Amazon barred it, and they're going to turn it into like a a warehouse. But it was uh, like six screen massive thing. Hey Scott, where did you see the movie at? You said you saw it a number of times. The 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 first time I saw it was in a drive-in in Poughkeepsie, New York. So oh, the that Woodstock was a, Film Festival. Yes, right? that was actually I think the first public airing of the film, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm out there, and um, it was really unfortunate for the other movie that was playing that night, which was a film called Materna. And it was this little indie film. Unfortunately, the people who made Materna were there to watch this premiere of this movie. And they were descended upon by all these Zappa people. Yeah. So it was just, <laughs> it was just rows of Frank Zappa fans yeah. and they could not be quiet to save their, their lives or anybody else's. But I was approached by a, a, a somewhat tall, skinny gentleman who held out his hand and he said, are you Scott Parker? And I said, why? Yes, I am. And he said, hi, I'm Jay Warner. So <laughs> Jay Warner was there too. So I didn't ask him anything. I never do. But, um, you know, I wanted to be surprised. And I, I have to tell you, from the moment that the movie started, 
I already had tears coming like right from the beginning of the film. <laughs> and then, you know, by the end of it, I was just a hot mess. Boy, I was I was done. It was just <laughs> this emotional roller coaster. Joe had actually told me before I went to see it, he said, bring a hanky. So, <laughs> yeah, last 15 minutes are, are pretty turbulent. Uh, at times, he, he was stubborn. We were going to make a movie, and all he could think about was con- control, his control. He had some emotions that ran deep that he wouldn't express. I just accepted everything rather than questioning why are you like you are but i could see the workaholic and that was where his joy was coming from you mentioned jay just to speak about our process for a second because it was both extremely ambitious and very grassroots at the same time like i would i would argue all things zappa going back to zappa zappa when we started to do this archival preservation there was a really specific process in place that was quite complex in order for us to figure out how to actually crank this through a sausage machine and come out with a with a coherent film on the other end, we had to have some kind of a pipeline system. And basically what that was, was we created our own kind of FileMaker database system. And then Joe and Jay on that end and my team on our end, they would start to identify media. We would be logging that media. We would be inputting it into a database that would allow us to do keyword searches for specific themes. And because it's Zappa, you're dealing with everything from like quarter tone scales to poodles. Um, yeah, to, exactly. To <laughs> sexual politics, to exa- to ponchos. Um, I mean, it was th- that database looks like someone was like tripping their balls off, you know, when they wrote it. <laughs> but uh, but it is actually real, and it, and, you know, and it takes you through um, to a lot of of Zappa's you know musical uh, compositional theories, as well as uh, you know the history of his life, as well as political uh, politics and and uh, social politics and all of that. So then we would get that material, uh, we would digitize it in different ways, some for posterity, some just for the film's use and begin to work off of those drives. And then Mike and I would start to look at it at that point. So there was an, you know, an enormous uh, need for us as a, as a, you know, a film team to rely on the brain trust of people who really knew Frank's world very, very well, you know, from within that camp. And then we started to, to amass a brain trust of people from the outside world as well. And everything got kind of cycled through this kind of Zappa filter. Honestly, we could have spent 10 years making it. Like we could have had another five years. Easy. Like it was, it was. Oh my God. Don't, don't even. I know I would have, I would have committed, I would have killed myself. But, but the fact is, is that it's a true axiom of film that there's never enough money and there's never enough time. You fill whatever you've got. And there was a point at which we had to put the pencils down and and that's always good because it forces you to create some kind of structure and to kind of adhere to something. That was my question, Alex was like, were you the one that, you know, said this is going to be two hours? Yes, I had a very specific time frame in my mind of not wanting to creep above like 215 because I felt like to me, and I had said this to the financiers, there's two types of stories here. There is a movie about Frank and there is the Ken Burns 10-part multi-series that's literally part one, 1940, part two, 1950, part three, <laughs> right. 1962. You know what I mean? Like Zappa's life is so rich and so complicated and I knew I wasn't going to make that film. I, in fact, I didn't even want to make that film. Like, I'm not that person. And I'm sure that there will be people who love, you know, Zappa cast who will be out there going, but that's the movie I wanted. Screw you. And you're <laughs> squeezing Zappa's life into two hours. Um, I, You know, I'm, an, I'm a narrative filmmaker. I wanted to tell a story about a guy. And I knew that a story about a guy should be a little over two hours and probably not much longer than that. Or it will be a very boring story about a guy. Or it really should turn into a series and be something else. So, and Mike and I discussed this a lot, Nichols, and it helped us, frankly, determine what archival to use and what not to use. And it gave us some some framework within which to live because everybody has an opinion about what a Frank Zappa movie is supposed sure. to be, right? Obviously. And everyone, and I wanted to hear everyone's opinions, even though I might not have shared them, but they were not my opinion. And the one thing that I would always go back to is the very first conversation that I had with Gail. 
and what I had communicated to her about what I wanted to do and what what she had really liked about that pitch, that gave me a lot of inspiration to keep moving along those lines, which was she really liked the idea of not making a movie that was trying to be like the Zappa fanatic, you know, encyclopedic, trying to be irreverent because Frank was irreverent, trying to, you know, all mustache movie is what I would call that, right? And, but like really try to examine who he was from the inside, um, outside of just the image that people had of him. That was very important to me. And I kind of kept that at the forefront of my mind the whole time. Thankfully, and I think this is why she and I hit it off. I never had really seen Frank as a rock and roll musician. I really hadn't. Like I didn't really get into Zappa deeply until after college. And I came at him much more as a as an avant-garde classical composer than I did as a rock musician. I think had I really become fanatical about him in the 70s during the apostrophe period when a lot of people did click, click with Zappa, I might have had a different opinion, but... I liked those records, but I really got into him by the time he was doing other stuff. And so to me, it was a big bag of music. It wasn't just the rock. It was also the orchestral and it was also the synclavier and it was also, you know, jazz from hell and stuff like that. That is why, you know, um, I think you and Gail hit it off is I think it comes across the, what a composer's life is like. And that was really important to her. And I think you, your story is so honest. You know, a, a part of what her agenda was, uh, my agenda in the movie was to support your telling of the film. And people have asked me, like, you know, how hands on were you? And, you know, in terms of, you know, did you ever have to put your foot down on anything? Mm-hmm. I'm like, there's, there's not even a single moment where, I've had any inkling or any like that's weird or this or that it, the, the entire, the entire process, I think for me, which was thrilling was when you were seeing footage, I was seeing the same footage and, and also equally fascinated <laughs> at the same time. And, you know, look, it's your job as a producer to support your director. And, you know, in this scenario, you know, you had a clear vision right from the beginning, which was discussed with Gail. And that was kind of the rallying cry that we all signed up for. And you honestly overly delivered. Uh, and and you you just, you're an, you're an incredible filmmaker. And I hope that people do enjoy the film. I mean, obviously I'm biased because it's about my dad. But for you as a filmmaker, you know, in this subject, I hope that this movie for you turns into bigger and better projects and creates a lot more opportunity because you're fucking awesome, bro. Oh, thanks, Amit. Hey, Alex, we've talked a lot about the unbelievable amount of material. And so you had to build the system for cataloging. At what point did you feel like you knew what the story is going to be? Because, I mean, we're just we're just in awe of the decision-making process for this (laughs) film. In fairness, that's really... That's credit to Mike Nichols as well in a very big way. This was this was a two-hander. I mean, this was a multi-headed Hydra. You know, to Ahmet's point, I was very transparent with Ahmet once Gail had passed about what I was doing. He was looking at material. I don't like to work in a vacuum. So I was sort of, you know, describing the essence of what we were doing as we were going. Um, also, I was pestering these guys, Joe and Ahmet, all the time for stuff as I will probably be doing until like we're all dead. Just so it's clear, this project is not by any stretch of the imagination over. And I'm not entirely sure if there's any way for it to ever be actually be over. So, <laughs> so we're, I'm still living in this thing, just to be clear. This is not like a, like a, you know, a, a postmortem. That is this movie. And it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> So what we did was, you know, I, I come from, I have a writing background. So I had written out like almost like a movie structure that Mike and I were working from. And then Mike would be like, and, but the whole idea with docs is to throw that away whenever you need to, like to not overly adhere to that. Mike would be like, okay, that's great. But what about this? And he would sort of show me a whole chunk of something that he would just 
experiment with based on archival material and ideas he had. And that would send us a different direction. So for me, I think my job is to kind of hold on to some form of architecture, right? So that everything can move fluidly on, within that, not to overly control it and not to necessarily even dictate what it is, but to, but to know what it is and, and to keep things moving within that, that, that framework. Um, I really wanted the film to be aggressive and Mike did too. And he really went for it and we really uh, threw the ball pretty far out there in a lot of ways, but always with a sense of coherence, always with like, we want to tell a story. We want Frank's emotional life to be always at the forefront. If it doesn't either drive the story forward or express some aspect of his emotional life, then we don't use it. That was kind of our rule. So a lot of stuff went away that might've pleased a lot of the, the fans. Certain errors might've happened. Obviously we took certain liberties with his biography, I have no apologies about that whatsoever. That's how you make good stories is, is so the Wikipedia fans out there are, are going to, their, their heads will explode, but he didn't do this in this year. That didn't happen until three months later. He wasn't in, he wasn't in LA yet. You bastards. I'm like, yes, I know. But guess what? It made the story work better. So F off. Um, so we made decisions like that all the way along the line and just, but we um, ended up with a framework that we could work with in. Let me just add to that too, which is if you took the, all the visuals away and you and you were listening just to Frank words, which is extraordinary, to make that flow seamlessly, I think that that's that's really how because you have Frank talking about it. That's that's one aspect of what I think you guys did so expertly is to to thread the needle on all of that and to to have it make sense. And you know, it's not changing. There's little things that are for cinematic, like you were saying, where, you know, if it's a week or something like that, it's, these are not sub, substantial, you know, like falsehoods, yeah. or, you know, it's, I don't want, you know, just for that sort of clarity, it is, it is a very honest movie. Um, I think people will really have a much better understanding of Frank and it's the way that I feel about Frank. Like that, that mm -hmm. that's what happened in this movie is the person I lived with, <laughs> you know, who was my father. This is the most representative piece of footage that I've seen that really does give you this sense of how he could be stern, but how loving he actually is. Like towards the end of the, mm -hmm. you, you know, my dad was someone who would just, you know, in, in earlier in the film, you might get the sense that Frank was never a hugger and not very emotional. Like that's not the guy I knew. I, I've seen him do that with other people that maybe he didn't have that level of affection with, mm -hmm. but you know, really get this well-rounded, I believe, point of view on, on Frank and his attitude and everything. So it's, it's, I'm super into the movie. I can watch it on repeat. It makes me feel like uh, Frank's in a robe and his balls are about to pop out again. <laughs> <laughs> that should happen all the time. You know, you go, oh, great. <laughs> like, oh man, I don't want to fucking see that dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, and I got all the media was sent across to me. So, I mean, I I have seen things that I can't unsee. Um, <laughs> He's totally oblivious to the fact that this manhammer is like hanging out. That early eight millimeter collage stuff kind of throughout the film, but particularly in the early part, that was all stuff that Frank did. That's all his edits and stuff like that. Or did you? It's a combination. Um, what we set out to do with the first act of that film was kind of put you into Frank's brain, but not in a sticky way, you know, not in a like, Hey, Zappa's wacky. Here's a lot of, you know, wacky graphics, but literally let him speak visually. Cause he was a, a visual artist as well. And he would cut film and make film and, and manipulate it. And, then we start to cheat almost immediately. And then Mike starts replicating. And we're we're cheating from the jump. There's a combination of our stuff, his stuff, his stuff that we manipulated to look like his other stuff. I mean, it's really laborious. We were taking some of his Super 8 stuff that was actually quite generic looking and making that look more trippy. Then he had plenty of trippy stuff that we would mix in with our stuff. Then we had stuff that was all his that we left alone. So it's really a combination. That whole a very aggressive first 10 to 12 minutes um, is a kind of a mix of Frank's, a lot of Frank's world and a lot of Mike kind of imitating Frank's world. Okay. Um, the other hard hitting question I had was for Amit, 
what video game system are you playing in that footage of you from when you were about eight or nine years old? Was that a Commodore 64? <laughs> That's what I think it is. I think it is too. That one was not a Commodore 64. That was, I think, our IBM. It was like what, what was down in the lab at one point. But the game I was playing was Tapper, a very Tapper. bad version of, of Tapper. <laughs> I did have a Commodore 64, which, which, I, which I loved. But that, that, that was... Those were all on um, floppy disks, and I still actually have that somewhere because, like, we've never thrown anything away. <laughs> so there's that, that exists. Um, <laughs> it's in a box at Joe's garage somewhere. Can we get Joe to talk about the Black Page performance that he and yes, Ruth? it was on my list too. I mean, first of all, I'm just you know so blessed that she is on this earth and that I was able to actually establish a friendship with her over the years, um, which was something that uh, Gail had a lot to do with because Gail and I asked her to do some liner notes for the Roxy by proxy record, which was I think in 2014 or 13 or something like that. But anyway, we've kept in touch a lot uh, over the years, Ruth and I, and um, she always was really happy about playing that song on the piano. That was something that she played for Frank, that Frank loved, uh, just loved her interpretation of the Black Page on piano. So when we did the Zappa uh, in New York 40th anniversary album, it was so nice to get a recording of her actually doing that, right? And so that just kind of led to, you know, I was so happy that Ruth was available for you, Alex, to be a part of the movie and to, to interview Um, And I also wanted to ask you, was there anybody else that you interviewed for the film that you didn't include? That was one of my questions. But yeah, I mean, like when I did that scene with her, I played on her drum set, which was the drum set that was in 200 Motels. They flew that damn thing over. It's like a Ringo kit. It's a Ludwig Ringo kit that she still owns. That's what I'm playing on there. So I'm playing on that drum set with her in her house. I mean, (laughs) come on. There was no doubt that there was a person who could write music, fantastic music, who cared that it be played properly. And what I'm hearing was put on this earth for me. It was for me. That look she gives you when you're done. I mean, how did you feel? Oh, that was she, amazing. He's adorable. Yes, priceless. Yeah, yeah, she was She was so lucky to, a, a lucky get. The only interview that I shot, which was also early and before finance and just off our own dime that I didn't use, uh, was Del Casher, oh, uh, who, yeah. I, who I shot at his studio talking about the, you know, inventing the Wawa pedal and he had a version of it there and his relationship with Frank and Hendrix. Um, it just wasn't the movie we ended up making. It, that was the 10 part Ken Burns version. Um, <laughs> it just wasn't, it wasn't enough of an intimate way into Frank's. I was, you know, just to, so I make it clear while there's a lot of cheating when you make a, a documentary or any, or any other film project, there's an honesty to that. There's a, it's in the service of an emotional honesty, right? You want the truth you want is emotional truth. So anything that didn't speak to kind of Frank's interior life, I was less interested in. So is there going to be a physical release that you're able to discuss oh, in yeah. any way? Is yeah, there? Well, it's, oh yeah. Yeah. DVD, Blu-ray, all of that's coming. Oh yeah, there's sound soundtrack albums are coming. All yeah, kinds of stuff the, sound, coming. the soundtrack album will be uh, on vinyl and and digital. So Yay. it's going to be exciting. Does the uh, Blu-ray have to be less than a hundred hours? And if so, why? <laughs> <laughs> um, I I can't divulge. Uh, there is a there is a sidebar to the sidebar to the sidebar project that ah. we are currently working on. Uh, that if we can get financed, would uh, crack open uh, the side of the vault and and spray a geyser of material. I will be long off this planet before everything that's in the vault uh, has been exposed. I would say my children's children 
you know, uh, my my older brother and older sister's children, uh, like they'll all be working on all of this stuff. That's how much is out there. And if Diva had a kid, maybe they'd be all working on it uh, together. But it is it's very much a family business. And and there's just I mean, holy bananas. in a while Alex I know you have to go but uh, I just want to say Scott and I were talking about it we were just so you know we're lifelong Zappa fans you presented such a complete picture of this amazing human being emphasis on human being your storytelling prowess uh, is unparalleled I know, I know there are liberties taken to make it a story, and that that's all appreciated. It is a phenomenal film. We're just we're floored by it. Uh, yes. Thank you so much. I'd love to say it was easy. <laughs> uh, it was nothing. Did you lose years off your life from it? That kind of difficult. You know, I I, th- I actually thought about that at one point. Maybe from the Kickstarter campaign. Um, that was pretty yeah. grueling. But the movie itself was nourishment. Um, and not only, and I, and I, you know, I will leave with this is like, there was something that happened to me internally when I walked into that house in Woodrow Wilson and sat down with Gail on that big sofa. It was like, it was like I was with people I'd known my whole life very deeply. And the experience has been incredibly nourishing, I have to say. And, and, and that helped me through times when I thought the film itself was not actually ever even going to get made. I was like, well, I'm grateful I got to walk up that hill with my little tripod and have those little afternoons with Gail in the kitchen. I'm grateful that I got to meet, you know, to spend more time with Ahmed and Diva and like get down in the, in the trenches with Joe and Jay and that whole, like it was very, very nourishing. So the project for all of its titanic pains in the ass, which are (laughs) unparalleled in my life experience which I sent me back to therapy at a certain point. The experience has been extremely nourishing. Thanks to all of you. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's so great that we all came together for this. And this is a, a special time in all of our lives, really, because this has been a long time coming. So uh, thank you, Alex and, and Amit. And for the Zappa cast people for making Zappa casts even happen. That's pretty freaking cool. <laughs> ZappaCast, the official Frank Zappa podcast, is made in cooperation with the Zappa Trust. For everything Frank Zappa, including this show, visit Zappa.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at at Zappa. ZappaCast was created by and it's hosted by Scott Parker. Our producer is Phil Circus. Special thanks to everyone at the Zappa Trust and Zappa.com. This podcast and all the musical selections contained therein are copyrighted worldwide by the Zappa Trust. All rights reserved. And until next time. Good night, boys and girls. Ladies and gentlemen, I suppose you've noticed that this is a clay forest, and the forest has been manufactured for your edification by none other than Bruce Bickford. Bruce, would you please tell us what's going on on this table over here? Well, all you have to do is just move it a very slight amount, and then you take the picture, and you move it again, and just keep going, and you can pick up speed after a while.